that uh, a group of us went down to the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference in Orlando this past week. I had to suffer in Orlando. It was so hard there. Actually, you all had good weather, so I don't feel too bad. But we had a wonderful time at the conference. Thank you for releasing us and sending us. Uh, it really was... Um, I think in some ways life-changing. It was just a wonderful conference, which I hope to give you testimony and update about in the near future. Um, but because I was away all week, I reached out to my friend Peter here, who is a pastor at Life um, Lakeside Church. Did I say that in first service? I think I did. Lakeside Church, Peter Ninadov, who um, we've been friends for a number of years now, made friends through a pastor's network. And uh, I reached out to Peter and said, hey, I'm gonna be away all this week. Could you come in and preach for me so I don't have to do a whole sermon prep on Saturday? And he graciously said, yes, he would. Uh, I am grateful for Peter. Peter is, a, um, Peter is a smart man. He's smarter than me, so there you go. I'm bringing you in someone who's smarter than me, serving you that way. Uh, Peter is also a man who loves his church dearly and has sacrificed for it. And he also is a man who loves to connect with other people, loves to connect with pastors, loves to connect with God's people. And so I knew he would love to be here with all of you. That being said, um, there's a certain etiquette when you reach out or when you are going to have a, a guy come in and preach and, and that pastors exchange with each other. And so one of the like, what's the dress code? You know, should I come with baggy jeans or should I come in a suit or, you know, those kinds of things. Or another question we ask each other is, how long do you normally preach? And so my response to Peter was, oh, don't worry. Yeah, I'm normally 40 to 50 minutes, more towards the 50 minutes. My people are very patient with me. You'll be fine. And he told me he only normally preaches for 25 to 30 minutes. (laughs) that's not what first service said (laughs) now I know (laughs) now I know brother because I know who said that well for the rest of you um, since Peter's going to preach a shorter and a better message I figured I've got a few minutes to uh, give him some tips up here about how to preach to you all disregarding the person in the back who said amen. So I informed him, or would inform him, that uh, you all love Lord of the Rings illustrations. Like, I just can't use it enough, right? That's, I overuse Lord of the Rings illustrations, but they do know how to respond to Lord of the Rings illustrations should you have any. If you don't have any, they are famished for sports illustrations because I have Practically none of those. I give about once a year. So if you have any of those, um, they, would, they would benefit freely from those as well. Uh, besides that, they love God's word. They love Jesus Christ. And if you can at least preach that, then you'll be good. And I know you can, because I've already heard the message, and it's great. So let's welcome up Peter as he preaches God's word to us. It's a joy to be with all of you today. It's a real blessing in my life to have met Jace a little over five years ago and to share a life together with him and pastoring in this community and exchanging ideas uh, with each other is a great gift. And so when he invited me to come, I went on 
your website to see where as a church family you were in the scriptures and saw that you were going through the Gospel of Matthew. And so then that biased me towards the Old Testament. Uh, But then I noticed a sermon that seemed to be even out of that rhythm from the Gospel of John, and it was entitled, Mourning with Those Who Mourn. And so I listened in on that service that he preached a few weeks ago, and my own heart was so ministered by it. And so uh, it was just another way of being reminded not only the gift that you are to me and to our community, uh, but to this church family that he is uh, one of your pastors. Uh, And so I'm very, very thankful for you. Uh, And I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to Psalm 8. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 420. I didn't bring a Bible with me. I thought that was maybe a good strategy to learn a little bit. I came in and I said, Jace, do you guys have Bibles here? And he said, we do. I said, can I have one? And uh, you guys have the same one that we use at Lakeside. So I know exactly where I am, even on the side of the page uh, in this uh, printed pew Bible. So Psalm 8 is is on page 420. And when also Jace asked me to come, I forgot that you guys had two services. uh, And I'm used to only one. And so I said, oh, I have to do two sermons in a row on a Sunday. And then he told me how long he usually preaches. So I told my congregation last week, I'm like, you're not going to see me next week. But I promise I'm actually like preaching four sermons next Sunday (laughs) when I'm with our friends at Covenant of Grace. Um, uh, But truly, with an 11 o'clock service coming on noon, you know it's lunchtime too, right? So I am curious afterwards how you all handle that, because we're on the cusp of maybe needing to go to services. So do you all just eat a later breakfast or something? Like whatever tips you have. I didn't have the option of a later breakfast. I had cake for breakfast this morning. It was like, (laughs) I think that'll that'll help. Uh, I I don't usually do this even at our church, but when we did go through the Psalms, we did it while we were in the Psalms where we stood those who could and read the passage together. So if you can and you don't mind to stand and we'll read Psalm 8 together. It's only nine verses. It's a short Psalm, but there is uh, such an amazing summary in this Psalm of the whole of Scripture. Uh, that I ended up titling the message Worship and Wonder, but I was almost going to call it A Brief History of the Universe uh, because it contains most of the story in a beautiful poem as an invitation for us to join with our voices. So let's say it together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you very much. You may be seated. 
And if you'll permit me, let's turn to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word that we have read, for your brilliant servant who took the time to put in brief the grand story of who you are, of why you made us, of how you redeem us, and of the beautiful inheritance that you promise to all of us who know you through faith in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you help us grasp a little bit more of your majesty? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This psalm is a hymn of praise. You get it just in the beginning. to, To read the verse out loud is to be invited into Uh, worship. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens, and then it comes back to that at the end. If this is a a song, it's sort of the chorus opens, and then it goes to a solo, and then back to a chorus, or it starts strong, and then maybe goes a little soft, and then builds back up to strength. But there's an energy in this psalm declaring the majesty of God in all the earth. And it reminds me a little bit of yesterday morning. So the reason, actually, that I did have cake for breakfast this morning was not to to be able to have strength for two services, but it was my seven-year-old's birthday yesterday. And so he was anticipating that and actually all week long got birthday gifts from uh, grandparents that couldn't be with us and other folks. And so he actually had like a whole week of a birthday celebration. But in spite of all of that, yesterday I heard him like rumbling at 5.50 in the morning, which can sometimes happen if like the covers fall off and they're just cold and I have to put the covers back on or something. And so that's what I was hoping for at 5.50 yesterday morning. Like, okay, I just need to like put the blanket back on him and he'll be doing fine. And then I got over there and he was sitting up and he just goes, I'm seven, in full excitement. And I was like, this kid is not going back to sleep anytime soon. Let's just get the day started. So he and his older brother, we went downstairs and then tried to figure out how to contain this excitement without waking up his mother or his youngest brother uh, for as long as we possibly could. Uh, But it was immediately apparent that there was this joy, this readiness to start the day and to celebrate his birthday. It's snowing now. It snowed briefly uh, yesterday, and I I paused them when they were doing something. I said, come, look outside. It's like the first snow that the the heavens are joining in confetti in celebration (laughs) of this occasion. And it didn't last very long, so I was really glad I interrupted him so that I could speak that mistruth to him. Uh, Otherwise, it wouldn't have... Uh, been, it wouldn't have lasted for after they finished their, uh, their time watching something. But there is in this psalm this, this sense of praise that God's majesty is in all the earth. It's there. And it's worth celebrating, honoring, giving our lives to. It's not longing that one day it will be there. It's declaring, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so the psalmist is writing this hymn of praise, uh, sort of reverberating the echoes in Genesis 1, where we get our first creation story, and then are told in refrain after refrain, it is good. And God did this, and it is good. And God did this, and it's good. And then it's very good. And here, now, David, centuries later, is saying, it's still good. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's there. 
Now it also reveals to us something about how God works in that this majesty which is pervasive is noticed by so few. It's hidden. You have to have eyes of faith to see it so that uh, uh, many people can see the same things that we see uh, in the past few weeks, be driving down the same street that we would drive down, see all the varieties of color and what for you and I would cause us to say, wow, God's wonderful and he's beautiful and he's creative. Somebody else can drive down the same street, see it all and think nothing of him. Barely even notice it, just more thinking about what task they have coming up or what email they need to respond to or who's not, you know, driving the way they want in front of them. So the same road with the same surroundings can be observed completely differently. And so here this, David is inviting us into his worship to say the majesty is all around us. And the goodness that was spoken over creation is still evident everywhere. And we have reasons to celebrate it. And so in this uh, hymn of praise, we see that, uh, that there's not a, a longing for one day that this majesty would come, but that it's already in the earth. And this majesty is in the earth because our God is sovereign over this earth. We actually get in the life of Jesus a time where he quotes this psalm. And if you have your Bible open, you can turn to Matthew chapter 21 to see where Jesus uh, quotes from this psalm. And you'll see how he uh, affirms this aspect of praise within it. So this is Matthew 21. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 775. Jesus has already uh, made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the last week of his life, and there has already been praise at his coming, the announcing of Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus goes into the temple, and the praises continue in the temple. And we pick it up in verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city, to Bethany, and lodged there. So we see the dynamic here in this story where the same events are happening, but what evokes the praise of the lame and the weak and the children evokes a completely opposite response from the chief priests and the scribes. So the majesty is there, but how they behold it is totally different. But you might have also noticed that when Jesus quoted Psalm 8, uh, a phrase was used in his quotation that we didn't read together when we read Psalm 8. He, in reading it, was reading from the Greek Septuagint in his memorizing of it and said, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. 
which we had read together in our Hebrew scriptures, that out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength. And so it gets to the heart of what is being communicated there in the original that we have limitations in being able to put it together. But if you combine those two ideas that he has established his strength through praise or through praise, he has established the strength to still his enemy and avenger. So it's not just David as the psalmist who's inviting us to praise him for his majesty, but actually then within the psalm is a declaration that it is through praise that the enemy will be silenced, that the avenger will be stopped. And so we're all invited into this worship and this wonder of what God is doing through are declaring and recognizing and affirming his majesty. So here in the psalm, this, this hymn of praise, we have first the creation story retold. Genesis 1, which is already a short passage, is made shorter here in Psalm 8. And most of the elements of Genesis 1 are here in Psalm 8 and says that God's glory is above the heavens, that they're your heavens, the work of your fingers, that you have set them in place. In the ancient Near East, for all the other civilizations outside of the children of Israel, they would have looked up at the sky and said, there must be a sun god, there must be a moon god, the stars must be other gods. And they had a sense that there was more to life than simply what we see and observe, but their way of synthesizing it would have been believing in many, many gods. And here, David, joining the echo, uh, the truths of Genesis 1, is saying there is one God over all the heavens and the earth. He made the sun and the moon. It's all the work of his fingers. It's his creation. It's his goodness. And he made us in his image. He has crowned us with glory and majesty and honor. There's something about his glory that's above the heavens that he's also instilled in you and me. And as Jacob was sharing through the calendar, uh, when we often do see images of grandeur that really cause us to have a, a response of, of majesty in what we're beholding, it is when we often see uh, feats of nature, when we see the ocean or when we see the Grand Canyon or all different aspects of God's beauty that we recognize there's a majesty. But I don't assume that any of you had thoughts of majesty when you saw me. <laughs> Just like I don't assume that most of you think majesty when you look in a mirror. And the psalmist, however, is saying that the God whose glory is above the heavens has in making us uniquely in his image given to us. It's a different glory. It's not the same, but it's still glory. It's still honor. It's still beauty. And so we are, as we look at one another, to reflect back at who God is, how creative he is in the different ways he made us. Just like we see that diversity in the trees and in the seasons, we're supposed to look at one another and just be like, wow, God is incredibly gifted. I don't think he's bored a day in his life. Like he just knows how to do different and wonderful things. And that story is retold here 
this goodness of creation. And not only that he made it all, but that he's mindful of it all. In verse four, that you are mindful of us, that you care for us, that he is not only powerful, but kind. He's not only strong, but good. I mean, if he can make all of those things, why does he care for us? Why is he mindful of us? And so David is reflecting back on this with us. It's, a, it's in the form of a question. Like, I believe that, but that also puzzles me because I feel like I can get bored so quick and I can stop being amazed and you who can do so much are ever mindful of us. You care about each and every one of our needs and that is the unique creation story as the children of Israel have shared. There's one God over all and he knows us all and he made all of us with a purpose and he declared over all of us it is good but this psalm was written by David it was not written back in Genesis or even in the Garden of Eden this is not the reflection of Adam looking up at the sky and so just as much as this psalm includes the retelling of the creation story it also within it has the fall acknowledged. So there's creation retold and there's the fall acknowledged. It, it almost uh, trips us up as we're reading it when it opens with such exuberant praise and how majestic is your name in all the earth and then it says that you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So the psalmist knows what enemies are like. The psalmist knows what opposition is like. The psalmist knows what injustice is like. The psalmist knows what brokenness is like. And so this psalm is being written outside of the garden, just like you and I live every day of our lives outside of the garden. And even though there is so much that we can look at and say it is good, there is so much that we can look at and say it is not so good. Why does this happen? And why do people have to go through this? Why do we have to offer these prayers? And so this invitation into worship and wonder is done with eyes wide open with all of the broken realities around us. And there again, we see that most clearly in the life of Jesus when he quoted Psalm 8. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem and then he was inside the temple and it was while he was inside the temple and the children started adding to the chorus of praising him that it says the chief priests and the rulers were mad and they were angry. So Jesus was singing Psalm 8 in the presence of his enemies, in the midst of their hostility and their opposition when their minds were fixed on putting him to death. Jesus quoted Psalm 8. Psalm 8 was in the mind of Jesus when murder was in the heart of his enemies. This Psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, was in his heart, in his mind, when most of the adults around him were prepared to come after him. And so Jesus is again showing us worship is not something we will one day do, though we believe that gathered around the throne from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we will worship God forever. We're not supposed to wait until then to worship him. 
in this life with this brokenness, surrounded by our enemies, we are invited to worship and to wonder at who he is and how faithful he is in being mindful of us in the midst of everything it is that we're going through. Then in this brief psalm, we also have the redemption patterned. And so from the creation being retold to the fall acknowledged, then we have redemption itself already patterned for us in this psalm. In verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It's, a, it's almost like a riddle. Wait a minute. <laughs> I can get majestic in all the earth and then... Is it, is it out of the mouth of babes? Like, that's where strength comes from? Wait, I, my, I was thinking of how great you are, God, and now you're pointing to something so small, something so innocent, some, like they can't even speak yet, words, make, just make noises, and yet you're pointing us to say it will be out of the mouths of babies and infants that you will and have established strength. For the children of Israel, I submit to you, one of the stories that would have come to their mind is the story of Moses. There was an enemy, there was an avenger, there was an oppressor in Pharaoh. And as the nation grew, he only got angrier. And so he tried to make that oppression even greater. And yet they kept growing. And then his response to that was not to say, well, maybe I should change my mind and be nicer to these people. He got demonic and he ordered the execution of all of the male children. And we read this sort of glorious rebellion of two Hebrew midwives who say, I don't care how much power you have, I'm not doing that. And then Moses is born into a family and his mother can care for him, but only for so long because there's a sense like eventually the, crowds are gonna, the cries are gonna be loud enough, I can't keep them quiet. And so people are going to find out that we've got a baby. And so when she reaches that point, she has to wrap him, place him in a river and not know what his future will be. And as we enter into that story, say, God, what are you doing? Where's redemption going to come from? And it's going to come from that baby that has been placed now into an uncertain future. And very quickly, we find that there's a, a reunification with the family, but even that is limited in time. And it's not until a long time later that he as an adult comes back and goes up to a different leader that says, the Lord is declared let my people go. And the one who came and said, let my people go, was the one after whom the enemy and the avenger was trying to attack. And so we see this pattern of God being able when it seems all is lost and when it looks weak and desperate that he is actually providing a means of salvation and redemption. And I tell that story to remind you then of the story of Jesus and when he was born. Not the exact same scenario again, but the children of Israel longing for a savior, longing for help from the outside. 
wanting somebody on a chariot that could finally be strong enough to liberate Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to send a baby. And when Herod gets a glimpse from the wise men of the east that a baby has been born who might become the future king, he goes demonic as well. And he goes after all of the young children of Bethlehem. Is there a baby crying somewhere that all of the powers and the principalities are fearful of? Yes. That they would do unconscionable things to try to stop? Yes. Can they stop him? No. This is redemption patterned. Who can do that? Who's that majestic that he can bring about redemption in such unique and amazing ways? But if this is how redemption is patterned, that God can work in what seems helpless and hopeless and those who seem lost and abandoned and can bring about restoration, This is the type of person then as an adult who when he's preaching would preach a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount that your pastors have been walking you through. Is there really blessing in mourning? Is there really joy in serving or in suffering, being persecuted for righteousness sake? I mean, none of those things make sense to our natural mind unless we've beheld the majesty of our God and the wonder of how he works and brings about redemption. And so then it wouldn't surprise us if that same Jesus, when a chief priest or one of the religious leaders comes up to him in Nicodemus and feels close and is asking questions, that Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You need to become childlike if you're going to see this. It's all around you, and it's here. But if you don't want to be like the other ones who keep getting angry and who keep rejecting it and who want nothing to do with it, if your heart is sincere, you actually need to go back to zero. You need to be born all over again to see this. And no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And so it's not only his willingness to become one of us and to be born. It is our willingness to submit and surrender to say whatever we've learned, whatever we know, whatever our background is, none of us get in unless we're willing to be born again. To become young again so that we would be able to experience the majesty that has always been in front of us. This is how redemption is patterned. A brief illustration of my own Life. Uh, my wife and our kids were blessed to do a sabbatical. It was the first time we were away from our church for an extended period of time. It was for about 11 weeks. Uh, one of the last times that Jason and I had actually interacted before uh, COVID uh, it was a members meeting that you all had and you asked to use uh, our church facility for a Wednesday night. It was the Wednesday night that the governor shut everything down on Friday for those of you that were there at it, but I remember that there was a sabbatical in your future at that point, which I believe has not happened yet. 
and I'll ask you as a church family to covenant with me that it will happen. Uh, that even though COVID has disrupted it, uh, that you will graciously extend it to him. Uh, but our family in 2018 got to do one, and so we took uh, my wife and our three kids to the place where both of my parents were born and my wife's grandparents in Eastern Europe. And one of the places that we wanted to go to that we heard existed, but nobody could tell us where on a map it was, was actually a, a gravesite and a memorial where my wife's great-grandfather had died. It's in northern Serbia, and uh, we knew which town it was close to, but nobody could tell us where it was. So we had a, a picture of it, and we drove with our kids who were five, three, and one at the time to this town. I speak very little Serbian. Uh, my wife doesn't speak any, and so it's like, we just have to hope <laughs> we providentially get lucky and somebody can speak English, and they maybe have seen this before. So we go into town, because uh, somebody said, if you want to find out who's buried where, go to the Orthodox priest, and they know where everybody's buried. So we, uh, we stopped at a restaurant to feed the kids, then we went to the Orthodox church, I showed the picture, they're like, we have no idea where this is, we've never seen it before. It's not in our town, it must be in the other town. And so we drove across, around farm fields, so it wasn't very far if we could fly like an eagle, but we had to drive around. And it took us about an hour to get to the next town, and then we heard the same thing. We have no idea what this is, we haven't seen it. And we'd been communicating back home with her grandmother and eventually heard, no, it's probably not in the center of town and it's probably not um, uh, in an obvious place where there's already a cemetery, that they think that they've already, that where they put this is where the tragedy happened because the memorial was for a hundred men who'd been rounded up between two towns into the middle of fields and all executed after World War II. None of them uh, complicit in the sin of the Third Reich and the German army, but all of them ethnic Germans living in northern Serbia. And so in punishment afterwards, a hundred of the able-bodied men round up and killed. My wife's grandfather just wasn't home because he was already in a prison camp. But his father was home and his brother was home. So then when we heard, okay, maybe this is between the two towns. Now we like, I don't know if we're gonna find this ever. Uh, but I said to my wife, let's stay on the outskirts of town. And what we need to see is if we can find a younger person who then maybe speaks a little bit of English and an older person who's maybe heard about this that could point us to where we're going. So we stay on the outskirts of town and sure enough, a young guy is washing his car and an older man is sitting on a flipped over five gallon bucket talking to him while he's washing his car. And I said, okay, this is like as good of a chance as we're gonna get. So we pull off and we start talking and this man says, you know, I've never been to this place. I've never seen it my, myself, but I think I know where it is. And so follow after me. And so we follow after him and now we are not on roads. We are where only the tractors go between the fields, but it, it's felt like, yes, this is, if we're gonna find this, this is the kind of place that it's in. And then sure enough, when we finally made the turn, we're in the distance, we could see a hundred crosses. We knew we were there. And then we parked and we got out of the car with our kids and went and they had, uh, because of how many people involved, like 50 names on the front, if you will, and 50 names in the back. 
and my wife's grandmother had a picture of the front which did not include her husband's family's names on it. And so one of the things that she was wondering is, is the name on the back? And so we went, and then we saw it. And it's hard to describe to you the reaction of standing at a place where then my wife realizes if her grandfather's just home that day, then he's buried there. And she doesn't exist. And our kids don't exist. And then we saw his name. And her grandfather's name is his father's name. And so there on a plaque, I have a picture. I can show it to you after service on my phone. Is my wife, and at that time our five-year-old and our three-year-old, and our one-year-old who can not really say that much. But here we are in a place where the enemy and the avenger sought to bring an end to part of my wife's family. And to be able almost 70 plus years later stand there with a one-year-old. He turned one-year-old while we were over there in Serbia was just one of those amazing, beautiful experiences to say in all of the brokenness that exists, the majesty of God is still in the earth. And he is still working his redemption for you and for me. And we see it most gloriously displayed on the cross. When we think of as adults, the times in our lives that we feel most childlike. You might have a different suggestion, but one that I submit to you that makes me feel like I'm one years old all over again is when something hurts so bad, I cry. And I cry to the point that I can't like stop. And I'm grieving the loss of something. That however old I am, I feel like I'm young all over again. I had someone a few years ago in interviewing me for the potentiality of some work with a national Christian organization. It was the best HR question I'd ever gotten. This lady came across the desk and she said, I'd love to know the last time the gospel brought you to tears. I was like, that's an amazing question. (laughs) But we know when our Savior was brought to tears. We know when he cried on the cross for you and for me. We know when he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. We know that he was in agony when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we read Psalm 8, and we say, who are we that you are mindful of us and yet you've given us so much dominion and we see that Adam messed up that dominion, David messed up that dominion. The psalm pushes us forward and says, will there be anyone who takes the responsibility seriously and with integrity and does everything that you've asked them to do and exercises that dominion perfectly And as Christians, we say, yes, there is, and his name is Jesus. Which is then in the letter to the Hebrews, the author comes back to Psalm chapter 8 in Hebrews chapter 2 and points to Jesus. 
as the fulfillment of the one under whom all things will be brought into subjection under his feet. And so therefore this passage is not only showing us and patterning the redemption, but promising us the restoration that one will come who can exercise for you and for me dominion over the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if he really did that, then one day every knee will really bow to the praise of his great name. And so to conclude, I invite you once more to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, where we're given a New Testament hymn of praise, where all of the wonder of Psalm 8 is then personified in our Savior Jesus Christ. And if you don't mind, one more time, for those of you who can, stand and read it with me. Philippians chapter 2, we will read together from verse 5 to 11, this Christ hymn of praise. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to see your majesty in creation, in your sovereignty over this world but also in the marvelous and miraculous work of your Son on our behalf. Oh, Lord, would you continue to draw us and invite us into the praise of your great name, that the majesty that is already filling the earth would be recognized and acknowledged by more and more that the resound of your praise would grow in strength and that the enemy, the avenger and the foe would be silenced. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.